Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Tamara Thomas, editor-in-chief of UrbanHealthToday.com, part of the DocWire family of medical news sites. And I want to thank you for tuning in to Urban Health Weekly. Our goal each week is to keep you informed of the latest in health and medical news right from today's headlines. It's time to empower yourself with open conversations about your medical care with news that matters to you. So are you ready? Let's get started. I'm Tamara Thomas, Editor-in-Chief of Urban Health Today, and I'm speaking with Dr. Tom Milam, Chief Medical Officer of Iris Telehealth. He's here today to talk about the challenges organizations face providing emergency department patients with follow-up mental health care and how telepsychiatry can help fill that need. Thank you for speaking with me today, Dr. Milam. It's a pleasure to be here with you, Tamara. Thank you for inviting me. Awesome. So let's get started. So tell us about your role at Iris Telehealth. Um, Well, I've been a psychiatrist for 25 years, and I was brought into Iris um, about four and a half years ago as chief medical officer and now president of our medical group. Um, to be a person who's worked in a lot of different environments, both in person and through telehealth, which I've I've done telehealth for about 12 years, and um, to bring that depth of experience to our team so that we can provide excellent patient care, get great providers, and focus on high-quality care to uh, underserved communities, hospitals, EDs, clinics all across the country. Started with one clinic in Virginia when Dr. Sheen founded it, and now we have over 300 providers in 31 states. Um, But my main job is making sure that we provide the highest level of excellence and professionalism in the care that we offer. And what are some of the benefits of telepsychiatry, and how does it differ in care delivery from traditional psychiatry? It's a great question. I used to get that, uh, asked that question a lot before the pandemic, because a lot of places we're thinking about adding telepsychiatry. Now everybody has had an experience with it. So um, telepsychiatry uh, really at its heart is a technology. That's all it is. So we try not to make it out to be something else than, than that. It's a technology. Other than that, you are seeing highly qualified, experienced providers, LCSWs for therapy, nurse practitioners and doctors for therapy and medication management, Um, all levels of of providers that patients need access to. And we're not here to replace inpatient care or in-person care, I'm sorry. We complement what organizations already do. We believe that face-to-face care in, you know, live, in-person is the gold standard. But there are many clinics and many patients that can't get access um, to the services they need. Not enough qualified providers in their area to recruit, They have patients on wait lists that are now shut down and patients have no place else to go but to emergency rooms or urgent cares to try to get help. We uh, provide a component of care where you can get great providers without the geographic barriers. Our providers are happy because they're working from home. Many were commuting two to three hours a day. So they're home, they're in a secure environment, they're working on uh, equipment that's with IRIS 
and they're act they're logging into clinics and hospitals and EDs, seeing patients in real time. Um, and it is just it's been a wonderful thing to bring a lot of hope to organizations that just could not find a way to create the access. And and really that's what we're all about: getting access to excellent providers into uh, the areas where they're needed most around the country. Now, is the telepsychiatric experience for all levels of serious mental health, or are there limitations depending on the severity? Yeah, and, and, you know, also I, we get asked that a lot, and people make assumptions sometimes, uh, things like that older adults aren't as familiar with the technology and they won't like it, or um, that people who may have schizophrenia or psychotic illnesses won't like the camera, I think they're being recorded. Some of that is based on stereotypes or bias. I, in, in all honesty, we've had very few patients across the country that don't take to it because sometimes the other option is no one. So um, people are often very grateful. It can be a little different. You know, you have to know how to present yourself to a patient who's new to telehealth and you know, what, ask them about their social media and do they do TikTok or whatever, different things. You know, what's their experience with that? And certainly older adults don't have as much experience. But the other thing too is really neat is often older adults feel like they're participating in the future. Like this is what it's like. And so they get really excited. So um, there are some places where patients just don't want to have a telehealth doctor. They feel like they're getting lesser care. And that's part of what we're about is showing that you still can get extremely excellent care, high level experience providers into areas that would likely never be able to recruit those patients to, or those providers to work in their communities. So um, there really aren't a lot of limitations, to be honest. Uh, we'll see any patient that's willing to see us. Um, and, uh, and like I say, there's often much more hope and gratitude for what we do. Uh, than problems. Uh, so currently you're in 31 states. So um, does that mean that um, your services can cross state lines or are you only relegated to the states the professionals are licensed in? Well, there are a lot of regulations, um, some of which were relaxed a bit during the pandemic. But um, even with those regulations, we have always followed uh, Center for Medicaid and Medicare Services guidelines, uh, things, uh, interstate uh, compact licensures. Um, we have a whole medical staff division that oversees that for every one of our providers. But in general, you need to be licensed in this, often in the state where you live. In some places, it's not required. But you need to be licensed in the state where you're providing care. And some of our providers who are working um, in our 24-7 on-demand service are logging into hospitals in multiple different states, sometimes 20 different hospitals. And yes, they have to be licensed in each of those states, credentialed at each of those hospitals, on the payer panels for each of those. We help hospitals and systems um, get that set up with our medical staff services. So our providers aren't burdened with having to do that. We pay all the fees for them. Um, so we, we follow the rules the way that you need to do it, uh, whether it's a pandemic or not. I was thinking more along the line uh, with my question in, in terms of, um, you know, limitations. I was thinking more in terms of, and you'll forgive me because I'm complete neophyte to this, but I was thinking in terms of certain tells, certain things that you 
certain nuances that you don't pick up for the professional, I mean. Okay. Off screen. Yeah, no, I, I understand what you're saying. Um, certain times in psychiatry, we want to see are there abnormal movements or tremors? We can get a lot of that. I can ask people to stand up and walk and move their camera or oh, okay. move their laptop. I can have them hold their hand up. I can assess wounds or lesions on their bodies that they're concerned about. I can look at their eyes and look for nystagmus or movements. So um, those kinds of things that are um, sometimes side effects of psychiatric medications or other medications. So we can do as much of that. Hard to look in someone's ear without the proper uh, tools, but we can, we can do a lot. But um, if there's something we can't do, we try to arrange uh, for a person to go to a primary care provider, or is there an on-site person that could do that part of the evaluation or the exam, like a nurse that could come in and, and help us in different ways. Um, the other aspect that I think is important is there are cultural differences around the country uh, where having the right type of provider, and this is not meant in any discriminatory way, it's meant to put people at ease. And when you're talking about mental health issues or substance use issues, it's often very personal. And uh, so uh, cultural differences, having providers uh, that uh, maybe speak Spanish, working with a Latino population, um, you know, with all the immigration issues, sometimes they're, they're maybe scared to open up about certain things. Um, so we wanna do as much as we can uh, to put people at ease um, some places say we really need a female provider because we work with female population or uh, things like that, or um, somebody that is of our cultural origin because of the, uh, it's a large group that we serve, or somebody who has a lot of experience um, working with um, uh, people with uh, scarcity of housing or homelessness. Uh, so we, at IRIS, we have a matching process. It's, it's a proprietary where we really take a lot of the data that the clinic or hospital needs around the cultural fit, language fit, age, demographics, diagnoses, and match that with the providers who have experience in working with those populations and age groups, but most importantly, have a heart for the work. Because we're, we're working in underserved communities. Most of it's community mental health, rural health, FQHCs, health centers, community hospitals. Even urban areas have shortages, um, but we're working in these areas. And so anything we can do to get the right provider to the right clinic um, makes it for a long-term success. We're not a temp agency. We're not a locums agency. We've been there to demonstrate that telehealth can be an effective arm or component of a clinic or a hospital system. I'm very curious, Dr. Milam. I'm curious about the emergency department. First of all, let's start with this. Walk me through how a person in need of serious mental health care finds their way to telepsychiatry care. You know, if we had the easy answer to that question, I might not have a job, but um, that is, you know, we, we talk every day about the patient journey because it starts with, with that. It, say, for example, you have a crisis, someone in your family, someone calls you and say, hey, my child mentioned suicidality, I don't know what to do, or someone's really depressed and I'm really worried about them, uh, what do I do? Now, you know, we have the, the 988 hotline coming out for suicidal stuff in our country, and that's a wonderful initiative. The question for me of, is, you call that line, well, then where do you send people um, who need help? That's where we can step in. 
um, and partner with clinics and hospitals and organizations to meet those needs. Um, otherwise, uh, it's interesting. In the U.S., the model, the culture is if it's emergency, you go to the emergency room. And psych stuff is, it, for people, the way they're experiencing mental health, often it feels like an emergency to them and they'll go to the emergency room because um, they, they call their primary care provider and they say, oh yeah, we can get you in in three weeks. Um, and there really isn't an established sort of urgent care for behavioral health. That's something we're looking at doing. Um, but they go to the emergency room and often um, the emergency rooms, some treat people who present with mental health issues better than others. Um, some don't see their issues as emergent. But the fact is that these folks are in need. There is no one else to go to. In some places, it's going to be a six-month wait to even get an appointment uh, with somebody, and they may cancel that because they're not available. So um, calling 911 or go to the emergency room is what a lot of people do. Now, we work in those emergency rooms. The key is to work with the communities and outpatients to develop access models for them to get connected to community mental health resources and substance use resources immediately in the community. And so it comes down to working with police, uh, community agencies, housing agencies, all these things that can be part of issues that people have uh, mental health issues presenting to EDs uh, is part of their, their lives. And, and so we love working with communities and partnering with, with them to create avenues for access to keep people from having to go to the ED. But certainly for many, it's, it's uh, the only place to go. And so it sounds to me though, like what's required is that the ER provider has to recognize the symptoms. And so I'm wondering, are ER providers, do they know what to look for often? Or is that part of their training or is it, catch as catch can? Yeah, it's, it's an interesting question because some people come in and they're acutely suicidal or they've run out of their medications and they're in withdrawal or their depression or their anxiety has gotten worse and, and they can't get an appointment. So they, there's something that we can do to try to address that more acutely. Some people might come in with chest pain or stomach pain or headaches um, or something that is a physical manifestation of a, a behavioral health issue. And um, experienced nurses, triage folks, uh, nurse practitioners, providers, staff, they're really good at recognizing that. Now, sometimes people know that mental health stuff can take a little bit longer to assess, and sometimes they won't even ask about those kinds of things. But a good provider is going to ask about that, just as I, as a psychiatrist, am I gonna ask, I'm gonna ask patients about their diabetes, about their hypertension, about their diet. Um, we like our non-mental health specialists to ask about um, behavioral health, do some basic screening, a PHQ-9 or a GAD-7 to get some baseline on things like depression or anxiety. And sometimes their stomach ache, their headache, their chest pain is really about anxiety or depression. And that's where we can come in. And rather than that person having to wait three months to get an appointment or longer to address that, we can come right in, see that patient within 30 minutes, an hour or so, talk to him or her, uh, make recommendations to the providers, get them care right then. 
Um, and that is an incredible value that, uh, that I'm really proud that we're able to bring to emergency rooms and hospitals across the country. So this is something then that you as a partner with that health center provide that, that background training of what to look for, when to, when to contact us, is that? Yeah, we, we do the work. So at IRIS, we, you know, two big divisions are ambulatory is about 70% of what we do. That's outpatient clinics, health centers, community mental health, uh, working with primary care, those kinds of things. The other 30% uh, is what we call our acute care. So that's work seeing patients in emergency departments, in med surge units, um, and doing inpatient uh, work on psychiatric um, inpatient units. So we log in remotely and treat patients there, just as if we were there in person. It's just the technology. Everything else is the same. And a lot of that work is consult liaison, which is you're consulted, you're an expert asked to see a patient to address an issue that they might be having. And that's been one of the problems in emergency rooms is they don't have anybody on staff or not enough people on staff to address the issues of all the people coming in. But they're serious enough that they can't discharge them from the ED, or maybe they've had an overdose or you know, cut themselves or, or uh, you know, some other type of um, self-injury tragedy, and they're on a medical or surgical unit, and they can't release them until they get seen by a, a psychiatrist or a psychiatric nurse practitioner. And they may not have any on staff. So it creates real problems. They can reach out to us 24-7 when we're contracted with these organizations and come right in, see people right away, talk to the team, and part of consult liaison, the consult is seeing them, what's the acute problem, talking to the patient. The liaison piece is teaching the patient and the treatment team about how to manage this person, what medications might be started or need to be started or restarted, uh, what therapies might be uh, needed. How can we right now in this environment be supportive and help this person feel valued and heard? Because we live in a country where a lot of people are not feeling that way. And if they can come in and speak to their staff and our staff and feel like someone's listening, someone cares, someone is not just giving me lip service, they're really gonna help me find an avenue to care after I get out of here, then that's often more effective than any medication or other therapy we can do. It's just helping people remember that they are valuable just because they're a human being on this planet. Um, Getting people out of the ED too, then we see them, where do they go? Well, that's a problem. It's what we call transitions of care. They have to transition out and often they can't get back into anybody. Their, their primary care doc has a wait list. Their community mental health is not taking new patients. So we're working with communities to do ambulatory care so that when people are discharged from a hospital or emergency room, we can see them within seven days or 30 days um, some of those are, are requirements of Center for Medicaid and Medicare Services that many hospitals can't meet. We help them meet those requirements. Um, and we love doing that kind of work. We want to keep people well so that they don't have to go back to the ED or the hospital. Um, it's cost effective. It's the best value. Um, and it's less dis disruptive to uh, patients' lives um, and whose life isn't already chaotic these days. What about in cases where um, there is no care team? 
um, you know, a lot of underserved, underprivileged people don't have uh, a primary care physician, for example. Do you do you have do you have contact with those kinds of patients? Absolutely. I mean, that's where the states that that did Medicaid expansion um, are uh, have allocated a lot of those dollar, dollars towards mental health and particularly towards substance use disorder treatment to help with the opiate epidemic. And I've been really pleased at how the reimbursement modeling, not just for doctors and nurse practitioners, but for therapists and uh, other types of caregivers and case managers, uh, the reimbursement for that in mental health has gotten better as communities, organizations, and our federal government has recognized the value that addressing behavioral health issues in all patients brings and how it helps them with their physical health as well. And overall, that lowers costs. So um, we love working with communities that are trying to be creative to meet the needs. You know, very, very rural areas that might have a, they might have a cell phone. Well, that's where there's legislation to continue to allow audio only on, in, in certain circumstances to get care to patients um, who don't have Wi-Fi access. Um, and I know people are worried about that going away. But I will tell you, if, if there is no more reimbursement for audio only for like behavioral health or seeing them in many very rural communities, there's going to be hundreds of thousands of people that are cut off from care. Um, you know, doing audio only, it's, it's not ideal. But what's the option? Right. It's, it's nothing. So it's better than nothing. And you can do a lot through audio only. You can affirm people. You can talk to them. You can help diagnose them, get them into treatment, that saves lives, whether it's substance use, depression, or other things. So we should not be limiting access, limiting means of connections. We should be finding more ways to do it. Digital health care, text, secure texting, other ways we can connect to patients to help them stay well in the long term and have other places to reach out to than just an emergency department. So... Psychiatric Times had an article last year basically talking about the challenges currently plaguing your industry. The severe psychiatry shortage, the national mental health crisis brought on by the pandemic, and over half of all U.S. counties don't even have a practicing psychiatrist. So obviously, you see where I'm going with this. Yeah. The population is like low-income people, people of color and children who are you know who are more becoming more and more patients uh, are at an even greater disadvantage. So I'm wondering how telepsychiatry even begins to fill this need adequately. Um, one of the great things about being at IRIS is that we have teams of people who have such a heart for the work and particularly heart for really connecting to people who are disenfranchised, who are forgotten about, um, people that don't maybe have contact uh, to care. Medicaid expansion has allowed a lot of those folks to get Medicaid so that they then connect to um, providers. But many psychiatrists, almost half of psychiatrists, don't take insurance. Um, the majority of the patients we serve um, have Medicaid or Medicare, and then some have some uh, commercial insurance, but, um, and many have, are underinsured or have no insurance. Uh, we work with organizations. We don't do billing and things ourselves. We work with the organizations on how they bill and how to do that successfully. We want to be good financial partners as well as clinical partners. 
Um, but we really, we work on setting up models. Um, you, you know, in black communities, sometimes if you have a black psychiatrist or black nurse practitioner working with a large population um, that are, is predominantly black, mm -hmm. that builds trust and connection. Uh, we work in a lot of Native American communities. Some of those are large swaths of land that extend into multiple different states. We get providers licensed in all those states. They can come in and see those patients. Some of it, a lot of it's by phone because it's very rural. We work with organizations that take cell phones out to tent communities um, to help people get access to um, like Suboxone or uh, drugs, to, uh, things to help them stay off of drugs or to get treatment for schizophrenia, depression, anxiety, bipolar disorder. Um, creative people on the ground doing stuff that partner with us. Um, and we, we love that. We love the energy. It's so exciting to see a shift in our country where people are really saying, hey, if I have a mental health issue, I don't need to be shamed. The stigma has lessons. There's still, lessons. There's still a lot of it. But communities, hospitals, health systems are seeing the value in treating in these folks and not just waiting for them, but doing more screening in schools, in nursing homes, and other places where people are gathered, doing it routine screening on everybody so that we can find things early and get them to the right level of care. And we provide therapy and different levels of care for people and work with organizations for what they need. Um, we are all very excited about what we do. We don't feel competition with other companies in, our, in the telehealth and telepsychiatry space because the need is so great. Uh, we just try to maintain a high quality of excellence and professionalism so that when we work with clinics and hospitals and patients, they walk away knowing that they have gotten excellent care and they're working with a good partner that they trust. And trust in medicine is the key to successful patient and clinic engagement. But Dr. Malam, indulge me for a second. So I, I understand what you're saying and I agree with you and I think that's terrific. Um, I'm just wondering, so if you have, let's say um, 10 providers and you have a thousand patients, does that not create like a burnout situation? I can't, I can't imagine that you, you, you don't get a sort of a buyer's market with this shortage. Yeah. Well, we, you try to leverage what you can. And at Iris, we hire psychiatrists, psychiatric certified nurse practitioners, mm -hmm. and LCSWs for therapy and some case management. So we only do behavioral health. And there are more and more nurse practitioners that are psychiatrists. We're looking at um, possibly working with PAs or psychologists or others that could come in to supplement the work of our teams. We, we do that slowly and carefully based on the needs that communities have. We didn't do L LCSWs a couple of years ago, but we kept getting asked to help provide it. And finally we said, let's develop this. And it has been one of our fastest growing groups in the last uh, two years. And, and they've just been incredible and getting them into communities where they do therapy and case management and intakes. Um, so it, we're not gonna make more psychiatrists. Medical schools, you can increase residency slots. That's not gonna have a huge impact. Right. One of the things is the collaborative work. So psychiatrists, mental health professionals like me, working alongside and educating family docs, pediatricians, internists, 
so that they can pick up majority of basic behavioral health issues, um, just like they treat basic hypertension. If they're more severe cardiac issues, eventually you're going to refer, refer to a cardiologist. The same with mental health. If it's basic stuff, uh, when we treat patients and, and they're, have, they're stable, we try to get them back to their primary care provider so that we can keep the pipeline open to see people um, who are in need and have higher um, acuity of need. So part of it's a new model. You don't just have patients and keep them for the rest of your life as your patients like we used to do. Um, you try to get them back to the primary care model. And that's, a, that's collaborative care. It's value-based care. It's where a lot of movement is going towards um, and where it needs to go towards. Um, the, um, the other thing that we really focus on is we, we do not do high volume work. We do not want patients or providers to feel like they're working in a behavioral health factory. Nobody is satisfied and the burnout is high. For providers, the EMRs, refill requests, all the paperwork, um, it can burn you out. So um, we, are, we work efficiently, but we don't partner with organizations whose main goal when we talk to them is about seeing a certain volume to break even. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Financially, we say, you know, that's our first goal was getting high-quality care to your provide to your patients and not and making it a good place for providers to stay long-term. Uh, and we'll work with you if that's your goal too. And we'll work efficiently, but we're not just going to crank through patients to meet a financial goal because nobody is satisfied. I get that. I was in private practice for my first eight years. I've been in an interim chair of a department. I know about the finances. Uh, we try to be sensitive to that, um, but we, um, we try to find ways to be good partners in how our providers bill and code effectively. And we try to be advocates at the state and local level to make sure that the reimbursement modeling um, is one that's attractive for mental health providers to be in the spaces where they need to be. Sounds like you guys have thought of everything. So you mentioned telepsychiatry being a vehicle to improve or increase emergency room throughput. Can you explain that? Can you explain how? Yeah, sure. So um, we have a, we call it on-demand service, but it's the 24-7-365 coverage model. And if a patient comes into any of the hospitals we're partnered with around the country, if they come in and it, either a primary behavioral health issue 
or it comes up as part of their medical assessment. Uh, the doctor, the nurse, somebody um, who assesses them and says, we, we need a, a behavioral health specialist. Sometimes they have them, not always at 10 o'clock at night or three o'clock in the morning, um, and some not at any. So um, the order goes in to their EMR and they call our telecare coordination center. And that's where they gather additional information and, and our, our telecare coordinators reach out to our provider team that's working um, that shift. It's often a mix of psychiatrists and psychiatric nurse practitioners. We triage based on the age and the acuity. And then uh, we call, we ask the provider what the, the question is that they need help with. And then the nurses move it, the video into the room, a laptop, a mobile unit, a cart that they might be using for telestroke or something else. They move it in there and we see the patient and we engage with them just as if we walked in the room. And we can often do that in around an hour, you know, and that's really cool. How often do you, can you get a psychiatrist or psychiatrist in there seeing your patient in an hour or two? You know, the, generally it's 24 hours if there's anybody. We see the patient and then we talk to the team again and we make recommendations about medications, therapy, whether they need, um, whether they're a danger to self or others, uh, whether they need to maybe be admitted to an inpatient unit or not what kind of community resources that could they be discharged to? Um, can we help with that in place? Um, and, and then we go from there. What has happened though to Ara is many emergency rooms have become the de facto inpatient psychiatry units and we call boarding. And it's for folks that are acute, there is just no place for them to get into, no psychiatric units that will accept them. And they're too unwell to go to wait on a three month wait list to go to an outpatient clinic or a community agency. So we'll see them, we'll see them the next day and the next day and the next day. And just as if they're on an inpatient unit. So uh, one, it's, it's, it provides value because it saves money from that person often having to go to a unit even though uh, being in the emergency room is the most expensive environment. But the fact that we see them quickly and help manage them, that can reduce the length of stay in the emergency room and it can reduce the, the patient coming back again and again to the ER or being admitted to the hospital if we can effectively treat them with you know the specialty behavioral health care. Same on the med surge units. People get admitted, they have major mental health issues. If we can see them quickly, get them started on treatment, work with their team, they can often save one or two days of hospitalization that saves the system money. Um, that's the value add, and we're not limited by geography. We can go in any room, any unit that has a Wi-Fi or some kind of connection and see patients, um, and uh, both inpatient and outpatient. Um, so um, we get great providers and get them where they're needed, and uh, we do a lot of work in emergency rooms, and I will tell you, the gratitude that we get from these organizations is, is very, very meaningful. We, we use small groups of providers called pods. You don't get Dr. Generic that day. You're gonna generally know all the, our providers that are covering those hospitals on a first name basis. You're gonna get to know them, their kids, everything just as if you were working in that ED yourself in person. Um, we try to mimic what it's like being in person as much as possible. Uh, to uh, make it a successful endeavor for the, the, for the patient, but also for the organization. Wow, that's fantastic. 
You know, it, is. it seems to me that most people, and I could be wrong, so I'm gonna lean on you for this one. Most people who end up getting mental health help via an emergency room do so involuntarily, usually by law enforcement or by emergency medical services. Is that accurate? What, what, what are you as expert, what do you say? I would say there may be communities that are like that, um, but I would in general say it can be a, like a third of patients um, because those are the ones you hear about and read about or whatever, but because there's legal processes involved. Um, and sometimes it's, it's what the state or the community or county um, has in place that if they can't be transported unless they're placed under an involuntary hold. So they, if they are in a police car and they say, hey, I wanna get out, well, they're voluntary, you let them out. But um, police need to be empowered to, and sheriffs need to be empowered to make decisions to work with mental health providers to know the basics of assessing safety. Um, and often they can do a, a police hold, um, a paperless emergency custody order to make sure that they can transfer that patient safely and that the patient can be in the emergency room, sometimes held against their will, yes, but because there's an acute risk of decompensation or harm to self or others. Once that risk is mitigated, can often release them from the hold. We err on the side of safety. Um, and you can't always predict what people are going to do. You know, yeah. a lot of the school shootings, things like that, you look, a lot of folks have mental health issues. Oh, somebody should have picked up on it. I will tell you, you can only pick up on what people talk about and share with you. Um, and so it starts at the family level and the friendship level where you're hearing things and have concerns for somebody, not just for a shooting, but who has concerns about self-harm or depression. And you start, you know, you've noticed ads on TV where you see more um, people that have depression or anxiety and they're talking about it or those ads of, hey, let's, let's have a conversation about depression. I've noticed that you've been down lately. Are you okay? The more that we do that, uh, the more that we can recognize that seeking care for mental health is just going to be like seeking care for your migraines or your arm pain or your knee swelling. It's just something we do because we want people to be well. And, uh, and I do think historically we have not addressed mental health issues in patients as much as physical health. And I'm very pleased to see how that's changing. And it's fun to be part of that change. You know, I have seen those types of commercials and they're usually um, put out by a pharmaceutical that's uh, marketing a, a drug. <laughs> they do, yeah, you know, psychiatric drugs often make the most money yeah. and- um, Very educational, but then it's tough yeah. to a doctor. Yeah, some of them, you know, some of them are advocacy groups, that the ones I really like, the others that go on forever and have all the side effects. Yes, um, I'm still a big fan of generic drugs and low cost drugs and looking at what the actual data shows on what is effective treatment and making cost-effective decisions uh, so that you know, patients aren't on the hook for the balance of those, the cost of those drugs. And you don't want taxpayers always picking up the balance of really expensive drugs when there are generic alternatives that work just as well according to the data. So uh, as much as I'm a big fan of research and what a lot of pharmaceutical companies do at the research level, um, some of the regulation and costs around that kind of stuff is something we could address better as a country. I think you're right, though. I think there does need to be more education 
um, just generic basic education that's not um, connected to a pharmaceutical so that people can recognize the signs of, you know, I don't want to say garden variety, but, you know, garden variety symptoms so that you know, okay, I see this, I know then that this person needs help and I should call somebody on their behalf maybe because mm -hmm. I'm worried about this loved one or this friend, right? Well, you're right. And the reality is we all struggle at times from periods of anxiety or panic or depression or low energy or you know the COVID fog. Um, as even as I'm getting out and traveling and socializing again more, I realize, boy, I'm just not as astute in, in talking to crowds and being around people. It's wearing me out more. I, I'm just, uh, you know, the COVID, COVID has affected a lot of us in, in ways that, that we're recovering from. We're all struggling with that. There's a point where something goes from just being a problem to being an, an illness. And that's what we often help sort out. There's, you can have what we call adjustment disorder with anxiety or depression, which is you don't meet symptoms for full-blown major depression or generalized anxiety or panic, but you have a lot of stuff going on. Stuff that you can treat, therapy, maybe medications, weight, diet management, cutting back on you know, alcohol or eliminating it, health, you know, physical health issues. And then they feel better. There's some people, and it's often genetically determined, things like uh, major depression, bipolar disorder, schizophrenia, and in some cases ADHD, where people have a genetic load and they, they are more, uh, there's more propensity for them to develop severe depression or anxiety, whereas another human in that same context may not because they have a different genetic makeup. So knowing about family history, which people don't often talk about, but asking your parents, hey, where, what is our family like? You know, are we a family that has anxiety? Are we a family that people have bipolar disorder? Learning to embrace it, look for early signs and getting people into treatment and not waiting till there's a problem and staying in denial. Um, and a lot of families and communities and cultures have a hard time raising up mental health. Like, they fear it's a weakness or there's something, it's a spiritual thing that God will handle and you don't need to, to go to uh, a mental health professional. Right, but, or there's this feeling of, well, we can, we can figure it out ourselves. We don't need outside help. We, yeah. We've got this, we don't need you. We've yeah, and, 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 and many of those folks, yeah. Sorry. Many of those folks suffer in silence um, with depression or anxiety and it, and tragically affect their life, their relationships. And that's why I got into to psychiatry, you know, not to go off on a tangent, but it was not ever anything I was going to do. I, I liked medicine. I liked surgery. I liked all that stuff. The end of my, my third year of medical school, I did a rotation at this old psych hospital, old army base, smelled like dirty socks. But after a week, I came back and told my wife, I think I'm going to be a psychiatrist. And my friends were all like, you know, come on, be a real doctor. And I said, you don't, you're not seeing what I'm seeing. You know, these folks are walking around just like you and I are, but there's something going on in their brain that makes them have to stay in a hospital for a long time. And, and they can't, they're not going to go out to movies and have dinner with friends and go to ball games. Their lives are very, very different because of their mental illness. And I felt that mental illness was robbing people 
um, of being able to live a full, rich life. And, and I've been doing it for 25 years. I've loved it. My family's loved it. It's tough work, uh, but it's great working alongside hospitals, emergency rooms, and the staff who share our heart and passion for helping people get access um, to high quality behavioral health care. So uh, we all love what we do at IRIS. There's one final question. I know you're a very busy man. Uh, do you have any insight into future psychiatry trends? Do you think the shortage is gonna continue or do you see some light at the end of the tunnel with uh, more graduates in the pipeline? Um, I, you know, honestly, I, the way we do American medicine and training, um, and uh, unless people who are coming out of medical school, you know, some of it's financial, they have huge debts, you know, I did too. And psychiatry um, reimbursement and, and salaries are going up and up and up as their shortage. And that's good. Uh, the reimbursement for that is good. Uh, it's getting a lot better. So it's more attractive. You can make a very good living. I mean, I will say any doctor, we're very fortunate. We're going to make more than 90% of the people in the world. Um, I'm very blessed that way. But when you're carrying hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars of debt and you're you know, 30 years old and have two kids, um, you got to factor that in. And some places just some specialties pay more. Um, I think as we learn more about what is mental health, the genetics behind it, the neuroimaging of the brain. You know, uh, my oldest daughter's in medical school in her third year and there's a lot of re research on self-harming models, incredible research that's in mouse models um, at certain parts of the brain that you can trigger and mice will start gnawing on their paws and self-harming. You turn it off with a certain switch, you turn that circuit off and they stop. There's so much to learn in the brain that it's fascinating. So I think as we know more about that and get over that you know, idea of, I'm gonna be a psychiatrist and you know, everywhere I go, they say, what do you do? It's like, you know, I'm a psychiatrist. I go in the bank, I go to Walmart, wherever. Oh gosh, you know, let's all line up. We all need to see you or you know, that kind of stuff. You know, I love that, it's fun. But the reality is when push comes to shove, some of those people call me back later on one-to-one -one and say, hey, I really do need help. I have people calling me all the time with family members and friends that need help and how can they get access? It's really hard for me to even get them access. So um, it's fun work to be in, um, having psychiatric nurse practitioners, having physician's assistants, effectively using therapists and getting good reimbursement for them to catch things earlier, um, more reimbursement for screening tools, more reimbursement for substance abuse services, substance use disorder services and opiate use disorder to, to um, keep people from dying and overdosing. Um, the more a country invests in that, um, I think things will be better. There's always gonna be a shortage. There's a shortage of urologists. There's a shortage of lots of different specialties, um, but we have to do the best we can um, to get people to the right level of care. Um, and I really do believe that primary care can handle much of basic mental health if we as specialists can support them and they can hand things to us when they're more acute and let us stabilize people and we hand them back to them when they're stable. Uh, that's a collaborative, you know, collaborative care model. And that's part of like value-based care. That is where our whole country is going. It's different teams working together to care for the whole patient. 
and we need to align reimbursement and other things to make that work. But some of the organizations we're working with are really starting creative initiatives on value-based care. Um, and it's fun to be a part of that. Well, value-based care is still about probably what, 10, five to 10 years out, correct? And, you know, we have some um, hospital systems right, that have that. made decisions because they are maybe the, they're their own insurer. And so they're paying, you know, they're working with, um, you know, private, commercial insurers, but they're trying to find ways to reduce the costs. And what they've learned is if we invest in mental health stuff, the cost goes down. So let's hire more social workers that can go into patients' rooms and do counseling with them and do and, and capture a lot of things that can be solved by effective marriage therapy or family therapy or supportive or cognitive behavioral therapy, dialectical behavioral therapy, EMDR therapy. Let's capture some of that and get those people treated early. Let's identify kids who may be at risk for anxiety or depression or ADHD early and get them into treatment and, and stable so they don't have behavioral problems um, acting out when the real core is they have ADHD and they can't pay attention and they're feeling a lot of shame and guilt and they act out. So the more we can find things earlier, the better. Um, Value-based care is the way to go. It's the data is coming out to show that it does save money when you invest in behavioral health um, as part of the overall care team. That can be in oncology. It can be in dialysis units. It can be in pediatric units. Any place uh, where there are patients or people, you can begin to provide services to pick up on basic mental health and try to uh, help people get to the right level of treatment before things get bad. Our country has never been great at preventive care. Other countries invest more in that, but we're slowly moving in that direction like a big ship turning. So there are many places doing it now. Um, the Affordable Care Act created a lot more opportunities uh, for it to happen but it is a new payment model and takes investment. It takes partnership. It takes risk, but we see people jumping in and doing it because they know it's the right thing to do. And they know that that is the direction healthcare is moving um, using digital healthcare tools as well. Um, how we leverage technology to help patients get access, self-scheduling, um, texting with providers about things going on, questions between appointments so they don't have to go to the emergency room if they're having an a side effect from a medication, ways we can use digital health to help patients feel held and cared for um, during their, while they're in treatment is really important. And we're exploring and, and implementing a lot of those. So um, as much as we care at our core for SMI, severe mentally ill people, uh, communities, underserved areas, we're also looking at digital healthcare platforms that um, can bring value to all populations of people with uh, both physical and mental health needs. Do you think, um, you said that you think that primary care doctors can handle some of these issues. Do you think that they're empowered now uh, to, to do that? Or do you, do you, is, is that something you see that's like slowly happening? Um, you know, I, you use the word, are they empowered to do it? They would say we have to do it. Um, it's not an option, um, and it has always been that way. And they do it. Yeah, I have always said, and it is known in the data, 
that if you ask in general, most primary care doctors, they're going to say 40 to 60% of what they do is mental health, either primary or a major secondary part of what's going on with a patient. And they're already addressing basic depression, basic anxiety, basic ADHD, sleep, insomnia, substance use kind of stuff. They're already doing that stuff. And that is taking care of a lot of people. The problem is there's still a lot of people because of what you referenced earlier, what we call a heat map. Where are the majority of providers located? Right. Um, you look at those heat maps and there are huge blanks all over parts of our country where there is nobody. Now we can go there. If there's a health station or a clinic somewhere that has some functional Wi-Fi, we can connect and see patients there. And that is really cool. Um, because those heat maps are based on where they're living. If you start basing it where basing those heat maps on where can we go and where are we going through telehealth, not where's a provider, but where are we connecting? It's different. There's a lot more patients getting care in very rural areas and, and big expansive states, Montana, Wyoming, Colorado, um, even rural areas in Virginia, you know, my home state, North Carolina, Tennessee. There are just huge areas where people aren't getting care. And, and we feel like everybody has a right to get high quality care. And many people just never have sought it because it was never an option. There was just no availability. And um, if we can be available in that clinic, that family medicine clinic, that FQHC, that PEDS clinic, if, even if it's one day, even if it's four hours, one day, that we have a psychiatrist, psychiatrist practitioner in that clinic helping, helping see the more complex patients, helping guide them with the ones that they're having trouble with, help praise them for what they are doing to keep people well, the front, their front line and saying, you've done a great job. Yeah, this is complex. Let me help you with this patient. I'll see them you know, every month or so until they're better. Working in tandem like that in underserved areas it's beautiful work. It's, it's fun to be a part of. And, um, you know, everybody wins there. Um, so, the, so a lot of those folks that have never had access to physical or mental health care, uh, creating ways for them to get access to excellent care. Uh, we love doing that. We will work with any organization that's trying to find creative solutions in their communities. You know, you brought up something interesting um, about coverage areas and heat maps. Uh, uh, and I promise this will be the last question. Um, so in the areas that Iris Telehealth doesn't have coverage, uh, do you try to form relationships with those, um, those hospitals or those, those health organizations in those areas to try to create a, a relationship where you, you are there to provide Absolutely, help. absolutely. Even if it's want, audio? Yes, one of the things that really in the last year and a half is that we've done is really build out a lot of our teams because, um, you know, it, it's hard if you want to connect to all these underserved states and, and, and areas around the country if you don't have anybody calling and saying, hey, do you have a need? So our sales team, our business development representatives. We have huge numbers of people that are calling and saying, you know, do you have a shortage of behavioral health care? Here's what we offer. Do you want to look at possibly partnering? Do you want to even talk about it? 
And some of that ultimately um, will come to me and I'll meet with their medical officers or CMOs. We'll talk it through. We have a format to say, um, can we have a meaningful partnership? Are we aligned on the best solutions and practices for caring for the folks in your community with behavioral health needs or the folks coming into your emergency room? Sometimes we have to have them change some things and do it differently or do it better. Sometimes we have to adapt, but we are calling all hospitals, clinics um, to ask about that need. Um, so it's, it's, a, it's a work in progress. Um, we started with one state here in Virginia, like I said, we're 31 states or so adding more um, every week or several a month. Um, we have about 40 uh, providers that apply to IRIS every week. We only hire about 6 to 10% of the people that apply because we want the best of the best. We take care of our folks. We want to be an employer of choice for the providers to not burn them out, to provide support, IT, everything. RIT is on within three minutes for anything that's getting in the way of patient care. They will pop on 24-7 and help solve it. Um, so we, we've assembled a great team, and that's part of the fact that being founded and led by psychiatrists and clinicians like myself has enabled us to really continue to focus on what is clinically best for patients and our communities and our providers. Um, and... Uh, and that's, it's great to be part of an organization that embraces quality clinical care and clinical experience, not just for the patient, but for the providers that are providing it, um, that they value that. We have our providers' backs. We take care of them. Uh, we practice with integrity. We treat everybody with respect. Are we perfect? No, but we, we really try hard. We have values that we live by as a company. And people come here, they say, this is different. And... And for us, we're just we're just doing good medicine. Uh, we don't think you know you know we're just practicing good medicine. Um, but we but we uh, attract a lot of great people, and and I feel um, just very privileged to work at Iris and and to be in leadership and to work with some amazing and creative people. That sounds that sounds like a dream job. Um, it is. Many people say that. It's fun. I hope you guys expand into into more states. Um, because there definitely is a need yeah. on the ground for, for the kind of care that Iris Health is uh, providing. Absolutely. Dr. Tom Milam of Iris Telehealth, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate this talk today. Thank you, Tamara. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Have a good one. Too. Thanks for listening to Urban Health Weekly today. I hope you'll join me and my friends next week so you can stay informed and inspired to take control of your health. See you next time.